This episode of Rebel Talk is brought to you by Rebel Tech. Human stories for startups. Rebel Shrebel, you've torn your dress. Rebel Shrebel, your face is a mess. Rebel Shrebel, how could they know? Hot trap, I love you so. And then I would have to battle it out on the corners with the souvlaki guy and the orange juice guy and the king custard guy and the fruit and nuts lady. You learn a lot working on the streets of New York. Hello and welcome to Rebel Talk, a brand new podcast that celebrates rebels across every walk of life. Each episode we talk to the troublemakers whose predilection for bending the rules is driving progress, change and transformation. I'm your host, Mark Schwakey. I'm here with Matt Schechner, native New Yorker, founder of Advertising Week and Lord of What We Shall Find Out. From his role working on the now US president's somewhat bizarre tour de Trump in New York, to his more recent work pioneering Advertising Week around the world, Matt's not afraid of rolling up his sleeves. Of himself, he says simply, I place a great premium on people who break new ground. There are too many people in the middle. Matt, thanks for joining me. Great to be here, Mark. Thank you. Have you ever been or considered yourself part of the people in the middle? Did you have to fight somehow to get to where you are now? Well, I've been working since I'm 12 years old. What were you doing at 12 years old? I delivered the New York Post. My route was 6A. It ended right by my house, so that worked out well. And my first job, actually, even slightly before that, I used to deliver the penny saver, which I'm sure is long gone. I used to get one penny for everyone I did, a little free, all classified ads that I'm certain the penny saver is no longer around. But my mom got me that job. I read that you said, as a kid, you had your own ice cream cart in Manhattan. Chip well, witches. Tell that, me about that. Was, that was scrappy. So my mom also got me that job. My mom was great for cutting out little newspaper clips for me, and I would follow up. I was a uh, Chipwich salesman. Chipwich was a great ice cream sandwich, chocolate or vanilla ice cream in between two chocolate chip cookies. It sounds like my kind of thing. It was a dollar. I made 30 cents for everyone I sold. Did you make them? No, 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 no. But I sold. I would get the cart. I would have to push it to the spot where the manager would tell me to go. It was full of dry ice, very heavy. And then I would have to battle it out on the corners with the souvlaki guy and the orange juice guy and the king custard guy and the fruit and nuts lady, the Colombo yogurt person, because the law said you had to be on the street, not the avenue. So the best spot would be on the street corner closest to the avenue for the higher traffic. And the law said whoever gets there first on a given day gets it. So I would be all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at 15, get there first. Some souvlaki guy would say, that's my spot. And I would say, I'm not moving. And had to call cops twice. And uh, you learn a lot working on the streets of New York. You sound like somebody who just gets things done. So Advertising Week we'll talk about in a minute. But it's worth noting, you've never actually worked a minute of your life in advertising. But you know a lot of stuff. And you like to get things done. How? Well, I'm sort of a self-described mutt. You know, the dog that you would adopt from the pound. You're a mutt with a very nice tie. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I'm 53, so I'm not a kid. But I sort of think of myself as just a New York kid who sort of knows how to do stuff. And I think some of that is a little bit of moxie. Some of it is a little bit of naivete. You know, when someone says, oh, that will never happen, I say, well, maybe it can. So let's talk about how plans are shaping up for Advertising Week London in a sec. But first, for listeners who don't know it, 
How do you describe Advertising Week to people not familiar? I've experienced it in both London and in New York City. And for me, I think I'd struggle to get across in a description the enormity of it, the sheer, you know, the the programmes, the people involved and so on. How do you describe it? Well, it's a little bit of a circus, a little bit of a university and a whole lot of entertainment. I mean, the, the property is built around sort of four fundamental pillars, education, enlightenment, entertainment and engagement. And when we started in New York in 04, you know, the world was very different. Mark Zuckerberg was on the Harvard campus. We were years away from the iPhone, from YouTube, from Twitter. Uh, Nobody was talking about all the timely and topical subjects today, artificial intelligence, VR, programmatic, trust and transparency. None of those were subjects at all, let alone major or minor subjects when we began. So I think the recipe that we've crafted over the years is twofold. It's thought leadership on the business of the business by day, and then a series of handcrafted showbiz types of events by night. And we are the only thing in the world in any industry that is accessible as Advertising Week. There's nothing else that allows young people to come. You can, if you're 30 or under, you can come to Advertising Week for 100 quid. Is it important to you to get young people there? Well, absolutely. That's for them or ab- for the For, for the everybody, property? because there are huge gaps in education. The young people love it. And very important, Mark, there's nothing wrong with making people feel good about the industry that they're in. Is that the objective? I think it's certainly one of them. I mean, the objective really is to help people navigate their way forward. And the learning, the thought leadership is really the foundation of the whole thing. That's the permission to do, you know, the concerts at night with Bruno Mars and Outkast and the comedy with John Bishop and Amy Schumer. And that only works because it's on that foundation of thought leadership. So I I think it gives it an energy. It's positive. It doesn't mean we don't talk about tough issues. No, the big headline from last year centered on, I suppose, the vulnerability of YouTube and some of the questionable content that brands found themselves advertising against. Very tough. And I remember sitting kind of heart in mouth watching two people I'd interviewed before. Yeah. uh, Keith Weed from Unilever, of course, and and, and and Matt Matt Britton of Google. And um, there was an edge to that interview. It was quite something to be a part of. You knew it was going to be in the papers the next day. I think that what Matt Britton did that day was extraordinarily brave. Matt took it on the chin... And how often have you seen someone who's, you know, a pretty senior guy in a pretty major company stand up and say, hey, this is on us. We've got to do better. You know, we owe everybody. We got to fix this problem. And of course, he'd been in front of select committees and not gone that far. And I think he really stood up. And I think it was a role model in many, many ways for crisis management and how to take something on. I mean, look at, for example, you know, and uh, what was it? Takata had that problem with the airbags. You know, you never heard a word out of anybody, you know, on that. A a typical corporate buried their head in the sand. And Matt and the Google team stood up and said, hey, this is on us. So I give them a lot of credit. What are you looking at this year? Well, uh, listen, I think that trust brand safety issue is still there. You know, a lot of the other genres of media, I think sort of, in a way, see an opening, if you will. I think the channels are all quite distinct. I mean, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that an open platform, a YouTube, a, a Facebook, whatever it might be, Snap, you, you have the ability, any of us can post content onto that open platform. It might be a baby's first step. It might be something political, like look at what was happening with the Arab Spring, you know, that happened because of these platforms. You or I can't go and decide we're going to post a spot tonight on ITV2. That's not how that works. I think that it's not 
apples to apples. I think the challenge is that when you have an open pipe and when we have smartphones and tablets and Wi-Fi and the pipe is now large enough to carry not just text, not just images, but video in seconds in real time and the amount of original content that's being loaded up onto that open pipe, the inevitability of bad actors is what we're dealing with. That might be hackers in Russia trifling with our election, trifling with your election. It might be someone who's a young kid who's disenfranchised in Florida, who's got some wacky ideas and goes on and watches a lot of videos with other people who have wacky ideas. And you have a tragedy like what we just had in Florida again. So the problem is how do you eliminate those bad actors? You know, I think from a technology vantage point, all the big platforms are committed to doing anything and everything they can. They sure as hell don't want that. Do you know what, Matt? It strikes me that you're a guy who's, you know, you call it moxie, but you're a New York kid that's come from working on the street to earn a buck, and you've built a global brand. I want to talk for a moment about Mexico City. you just come back from the first Mexico City advertising week, which was supposed to be in November. It was. Before the uh, earthquake It hit. was. And, and I believe that you sent a team out to help rebuild communities we did. when you and, shifted the... And the vast majority of folks who had something scheduled in you know, any industry, not just ours, canceled and didn't come back. We were determined to go forward. We were determined to contribute. How did it um, We sent the team down there to re- help rebuild the school. So thank you for mentioning that. It was great for our team. We felt it was, it was a gift to us at Stillwell, Lance and I, my partner, to be able to do that for our people. Heart, I love you so. Amazing. I think what I'd love to know, though, is you are now somebody who doesn't just know uh, New York City. You know London very, very well. You spend a lot of time here. I do. With your family as well. I love it here. You spend, my, my wife's here right now. You're expanding your global brand across uh, Africa, across... So you're now in Tokyo and Mexico, and I think South Africa's next on the agenda. Yes, it is. As a father... Yeah. And as a man, how do you see a lot of the stuff, the, the way the world's going? I guess... You put on what you call a, something between a circus and a university, but you're, you seem to have gained the trust of the people in this city's creative community very quickly. You must be doing the same elsewhere. Well, I think it's a real privilege to get to do what we do and to get to travel and get to meet people and make so many great friends. I'll answer it two ways. One is, I think, as it relates to our performance, I think we just do something that is you know, not always done, and that's we just keep our promises. You know, If we say something is going to happen... It happens. That's a big call when you're talking about some of the A-list celebrities that you pull into towns and cities. And I mean, you've got to keep those promises, right? Yeah. Well, listen, we have an expectation self-imposed. My partner, Lance Pillersdorf, and Lance and I have been together since the very beginning. You know, we are constantly challenging ourselves. So I'm not afraid of a lot of things. But one of the things that we are pretty maniacal about is not allowing ourselves to get stale. And that's why we're constantly challenging ourselves. That's why, you know, the opening gala, the kickoff night, is constantly being reevaluated. Any, any clues as to uh, Yeah, no, I'll, I'll tell you everything uh, about this year. The other answer to your question is that we get the benefit of a real-world perspective. And these are not the glory days of being an American citizen. It is tough. Can you expand? Well... You know, we did a great seminar in New York in September that was a very tough one, similar to some of the tough stuff we've been doing here around Brand Britain and Brexit, around the image of Brand America. And it was called Red, White, and Blue, question mark. And uh, we had the four or five top, top folks in PR, like Richard Edelman of Edelman, you know, the chairman of Weber Shan, like all the, you know, Ken Sunshine, who's been our PR, you know, guru for years and years, talking about, you know, 
what's going on in this country. Then we took four top creatives, Rob Riley from McCann, Jimmy Smith, Jason Harris from Mechanism. Jimmy's our longtime buddy. Uh, was it Chiat and now has his own shop, Amusement Park. And said, if America was your client, what would you do? And we also commissioned some original research that we did with a maven, our buddy Cleve Langdon. And, you know, not surprisingly, Mark, the image of brand America is plummeting. The image of... Internally um, or abroad? Abroad. The image of... Internally, it depends where you are, yeah. right? If you're in Indiana, you know, in the hill country, yeah. everything's going great. And if you're in New York... Or California or New Jersey or Connecticut or Massachusetts or, you know, not so good. So you, uh, American you... brands, I think, are starting to suffer. And I think the UK is, you know, in a very different way, has also created self-inflicted risk. Well, you called us out last year because you said if Brexit goes through, we'd have to look at where advertising with Europe sits, right? Yeah. And, uh, and that must have been hard from somebody who's become such a, you know, a constant presence in London. I see you walking the streets in the morning. I see you around for Cadilly Circus. You betcha. Around breakfast. So what is it about these times that... Uh, we should be doing because you feel it in America, we feel it in Britain. Well, I, I think part of our uh, DNA is sort of a, a relentless optimism, if you will, and a determination to find a way to turn things around. Is that Schechner's? Is that marketers? Is that American? Uh, I think some of that, I suppose, is our culture, but it's certainly how you know we're wired. And again, that doesn't mean we don't talk about tough issues. It doesn't mean we don't have a whole lot of heart, which I'd love to talk about some of the cause and the impact-related things that we're doing. But I think here what we see, and we've had some great discussions with, uh, with London and Partners, with uh, Conrad Byrd and the folks behind the Great Campaign, with the Duke of York, who we support, Picture the Palace. He does a phenomenal, phenomenal job promoting British entrepreneurship here and throughout the Commonwealth and all over the world, is creative industry is a vital part of the economic future of this place. There isn't a question that in industries like financial services, uh, I saw the headline this morning in the FT that the Netherlands has now pulled ahead of the UK as the likely home of Unilever's mm -hmm. global headquarters. Yeah. And I think on things like that, it is a sad inevitability that the UK is going to you know, lose a lot of those fights. But creative industry is not a commodity. An HSBC, for example, they can have 10,000 back office jobs here or they can have 10,000 back office jobs in, you know, in Amsterdam. The European Medical Association can have their meeting here or they can have it in Amsterdam. And Amsterdam and Paris, I think, are being particularly organized and aggressive mm -hmm. in trying to take stuff away. And that's really what this comes down to. But the creative community has something else going that's for it. That's not a commodity. And I think there the UK has tremendous strength. Your global influence in music, in culture, in fashion, um, in our industry, in advertising creativity, uh, in technology, you've got some great, great stuff here to play with. And I think that will be a very vital part of the economic future. And even when times are hard, I suppose creative people are optimistic. You bet. You have to be. <laughs> I understand that you actually worked with Donald Trump. Well, I, I did. I and, mean, and, 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 and the reason I brought it up to start with, actually, was because it, it kind of reflected your can-do, will-do, only-going-to-get-it-done attitude. Because when you were talking about um, 
some bizarre bicycle race called it's, the Tour de Trump. This is a true And the NYPD refused story. to close the roads. You got up in the middle of the night to start planting bollards at 2am with your bare hands. Um, pretty accurate, more. Okay. So uh, uh, I knew him very well. I mean, Trump was a, you know, a real player in New York. Interestingly, was never involved in the business civic community in any meaningful way. Most people who have, who have that, you know, real or alleged stature are on the board of Lincoln Center, on the board of Carnegie Hall. Trump didn't do any of that. And another measure, which looking back then to now, that sort of gave us a little hint as to where this thing was going, there isn't anybody who worked in the Trump organization who you can point to and say, oh, they're now here doing that. There was no farm system of talent. How did you know him? I used to run when I was a kid, 23. I was a, started and was the first executive director of the New York City Sports Commission. And it was sort of like a chamber of commerce for sports for New York. And it was in the aftermath of the L.A. Olympics that cities started to realize that sports should be treated as economic development. And that they bring jobs, they bring money, enhance the image, improve the quality of life, etc. So I pitched a deputy mayor who I knew as a young, uh, relatively young man and said, hey, I worked on this as an intern in Atlanta where I went to school at Emory and it was something called Sports 2000. And... I saw that, you know, what it could do. I was in Reggie's Tavern in the Omni when the Georgia Dome was an idea on a bar napkin. You know, when Billy Payne, you know, came along and said, hey, how about the Olympics for Atlanta? And so I kind of got to learn, I was nineteen twenty about how that could impact positively on a place. And New York was losing. If you, if you know New York at all, and, you know, the Meadowlands in New Jersey is there because New York City was asleep. You know, all those teams and all the tax revenue that comes from those teams used to play in New York City. You know, the Jets, the Giants, the Nets all played on the New York side of the river. The hockey team came from uh, Colorado. So I uh, pitched the city on creating something that would be called the New York City Sports Commission. And as a reflection of the lack of priority given to it, Mayor Koch was a great and very charismatic mayor. He didn't like or know very much about sports. So you did it. And so it it, it didn't become a patronage thing because it wasn't a priority. So a woman named Alaire Townsend, who was deputy mayor for finance and economic development, said, get that kid. That was me. And they gave me the job. And I, you know, I remember I used to have to wait for this civil service secretary to go out for lunch because she was the only one who had the typewriter that had the correcto key if I had to write a letter. You know, there were no computers. Couldn't call New Jersey. You know, it was a rotary telephone. You were blocked from calling anywhere outside of New York City. But it was an opportunity. And I took that and built it into something over eight years. Along that path, we got to meet all the people at the different Olympic sports federations. And part of our job was advocacy to try to bring things to New York. So there was a very famous incident in New York where the city of New York and governments often fail at easy things, could not make ice at an ice skating rink. And it was called the Wallman Rink in Central Park. And Trump Tower overlooked it. Jump ahead, he offers to fix the rink. There's a public-private partnership. He, Trump, and I have nothing to do with this. Koch, the mayor, the parks commissioner, Trump, have a press conference at City Hall. They're going to fix the skating rink. And a few weeks later, you know, it was, all you needed was to, you know, call someone who knows how to fix skating rinks, which, you know, Trump did. It was fixed. But then he embarrassed the city. He said, oh, look at these idiots. Couldn't fix the skating rink. I did it. He was always like that, was he? Always. And so then along comes this race called the Tour de Trump, which was sponsored by Trump Plaza Hotel and Casino. This is before he went bankrupt and lost all his casinos. NBC Sports. 
and Jefferson Pilot, a television production company out of, I think, North Carolina. He used to do a lot of sports television. And they had Greg LeMond, who at that time was a big deal. He was the Bradley Wiggins, if you will, you know, of that era, or Lance Armstrong, you know, before he went south. And uh, LeMond had won the Tour de France twice, was the Sports Illustrated Athlete of the Year, and that used to be a pretty big deal. And um, along comes the race people, and they go to City Hall, and the City Hall says, Tour de Trump, he just embarrassed us. We're not helping him. So I was in my office. I was in the World Trade Center at that time, and the phone rang. It was about 4 o'clock. Uh, late in the week, and my secretary said, it's Donald Trump on the phone. And I said, no way, it's one of my idiot friends. And I'm, how old am I then? It's 1989, so I'm 25 years old. And it's him. And he says, Matt, this is Donald, I need you. Can you come to my office? So I go to his office, and his office is exactly what you think it is. It's all magazine covers of him, a lot of burgundy. Did you like him? A lot of gold. Sure, he's very charismatic, absolutely. And he used to be a Democrat, by the way. Yeah. And he said, Matt, you got to get me Central Park for the race. So I went down to City Hall, and I made the argument. And I said, this is not about him. Trump Plaza's a sponsor. It's Greg LeMond. I remember bringing the magazine. Look, it's Greg LeMond, Sports Illustrated Athlete of the Year. It's NBC Sports. This is exactly the kind of stuff we want. City Hall caved, and we agreed to shut off the street at the entrance of Central Park on 59th and 5th, right by the plaza, which he owned also at the time before he went bankrupt and lost that. The cops didn't show up at 2 o'clock. Somebody put the word in, let's screw these guys over. So the race director called me. I was living down in the village by Washington Square at the time. I was single. I'm married 25 years, so this is a long time ago. And he said, Matt, nobody's here. And I rousted myself and went up there, and no one was there. And I stood in the middle of the street, and I put my hands up, and I wouldn't move. And sure enough, a cop came over and said, what the fuck are you doing? And I said, listen, this is what was supposed to happen. And I knew enough names high up at NYPD, Chief Hale, Chief Ryan, that he was able to say, okay, this guy might know what he's talking about. And he made a few phone calls, and I was right. And then they closed the street, and everything got done, and it went off without a hitch. Mm. What is your favorite Schechnerism? It's a question you ask all your staff on the website. I don't know if I have an ism, but I, I think it's really just rooted around this notion of I take every phone call, I answer every email. You know, you never know. Have the conversation. Maybe something will happen. That's a good lesson for our entrepreneurs yeah. and founders that listen to this show. Yeah. Listen, very quick, feature, fast questions, fast sure. answers. I'm ready for you. Advice to your 16-year-old self. Don't be afraid. Keep going. Your 16-year-old self's advice to the grown-up you. Slow down a little bit and make sure you take care of yourself. The most important single character trait for any leader, founder, entrepreneur, or rebel. Be nice to everybody. Be nice to the guy that opens the door. Be nice to the guy that you might see in the elevator on the way there. And everybody in between. Everybody matters. You're given the money and the power to solve one big global problem and one small everyday First world problem. What big and small problem do you solve? Richard Curtis, who I've gotten to know, who I think is a wonderful guy. The people that really know about it absolutely say that there is a way to eradicate extreme poverty. And in a world where you have such disparate wealth and poverty all juxtaposed together, I think that's a pretty big one that if indeed there is a path to solve it, it's incumbent on us to do that. And I have nothing but enormous, enormous respect for Richard Curtis and what he's done with Comic Relief and Red Nose Day and things like that. What small, tiny, meaningless problem? What annoys you every day? If I invite you to lunch and then you send me an invite, I don't like that. 
Don't, you don't have to invite me to something I invited you to. I know I invited you because I invited you. So don't send me an invitation to the invitation I extended that you already accepted. Finally, you're Lord Matthew J. Schechner. I, I am. What are you Lord of? Well, when I was 50, there was a, a surprise birthday party for me over here. And it was in the Duke of Wellington Arch in Hyde Park. It was very humbling. All my friends and colleagues from the industry came out. And uh, I was presented with a lordship. I have no land, Mark. But I uh, do have a deed, and I was made a lord, and my wife is a lady. I have embraced the title. She is, of course, is far too demure yeah. to embrace it. Lord of Chipwitches. But, but I, uh, I'll take that. That's yeah. fine with me. But when people say, I'm sorry, I should address you as lord, my reply 100% of the time is, I'm just Matt. Yeah, well, tonight, your lordship. Um, thank you for joining us. It was a real pleasure to speak to you. Great being here, Mark, and I uh, have a lot of love for what you do. So thanks for having me. Good luck with Advertising Week London. Cheers. <laughs> That guy's got presents. Do you know what I really liked about him? He travels around the world. I mean, he must have mentioned about six different places he's visited in the last kind of few weeks. And yet he's got this wonderful kind of old-fashioned way of just being nice to everyone. You saw him here at Spiritland with the staff. I've met him a few times, but I'm not close to him. We've done a bit of worked together when I tried to wangle some people onto the bill for Advertising Week in New York. But he's never forgotten me. I can pass him in Piccadilly Circus of a morning when he's here and I'm just random stranger to him and he remembers me. Like, that guy... You are quite memorable, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> the size of my head. Uh, no, but sometimes I think it's a New York thing, but also it's very much a Matt Schechner thing. He has captured the hearts of the creative community here in a way that's just unbelievable. Like, everybody knows him, he knows everybody, but... For me, I look at him, I watch him, he never, he never forgets a face, he never forgets a name. And it is, it's a proper old-fashioned way to do business, and he mentioned it, actually. The fact is, so many of us operate over email and, and text and what have you now. It's actually, if you, it makes you stand out, it's probably the new way to do business. We could learn a lesson from that, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's the way you and I and our team do business. We much prefer to pick up the phone than, yeah, I suppose. than, than email, but yeah. I also that whole thing about trump fascinates me like he has stood in a room with worked for and known trump in his words pretty well trump's now the most controversial figure in the world and he knows it like all that stuff he said about trump used to be a democrat and clearly he's utterly disappointed in the way the direction in which trump's taking the states mm. uh, that was fascinating to me that's it for today's episode of Rebel Talk. I've been your host, Mark Schwakey. Thank you so much for listening. My thanks go to our brilliant production team at Hard Six Audio, to Spirit Landing King's Cross for the beautiful studio, to my Rebel Tech colleagues and producers, Nicole Lyons and Meg Wright. Until next time, up the Rebels. Rebels, Rebel, you talk your dress. Rebels, Rebel, your face is a mess. Rebels, Rebel, how could they know? Hot track, I love Radio voices on, everybody. Radio voices on. Mark Schwakey, who will never work for the British Broadcasting Corporation. <laughs> We're the unemployables.